please, to Acts chapter 12. The text that I read just a bit ago, for our children, we're going to explore with a little bit more fullness. In fact, I want to read it again, including the rest of the context so that we can understand it well. But before I do that, let me say something which I think is pretty obvious, and that is that we are a people that have a lot of problems. Now, I don't know what that evokes within your hearts and your minds when I say that, but it's true, right? As humans, we have a lot of problems. Some of them are small and they're not really that big of a deal. Like we have allergy problems. This time of year is kind of miserable for some of us. Some of us have schedule problems. It seems like we never get to rest and relax. We're always running around. Some of us have have money problems. There's things that we want to or need to purchase that we are struggling uh, to do so. We have relationship problems. We're, We're estranged or have tension with people in our lives. But I want to talk about two bigger problems that this text exposes. In fact, in many ways, it explains why we chose to go through the book of Acts together. The first problem we have is a a problem of priorities. Now, all of us, even the most righteous and holy among us, and I hope none of you just put yourself mentally into that category when I said it. Maybe you're categorizing your neighbors who are sitting around you like they're in that category, and I'm definitely not. But even the most righteous and holy among us, maybe the most mature among us who've, who've been at this sojourning with Jesus thing a little bit longer, we still have priority problems, don't we? So let's just examine the week that's gone by in the briefest of ways. Whenever problems arose, did we immediately reflexively turn to God every single time? When we were prompted by the Spirit to spend time in the Word and to sacrifice other things that we really wanted or even needed to do, did we, did we do so? Did we treat each other, spouses, children, neighbors, with reflexive kindness that it just, it just sort of spilled out of us? Did we sacrifice our talents and our time and our treasure for the good of those around us? Did we, did we bring the light of Jesus to bear on our needy neighbors? Now, in some way or another, we probably did well at a number of those things, but the truth of the matter is we struggle. We have, we have priority problems. Despite the fact that we would confess that there is one true God who has saved us exclusively by his sovereign grace through his Son and calls us to live for his glory and to proclaim his good gospel, we often don't. We often have the wrong priorities. So that's one of our problems. That's a big one. Another one of our big problems is that there's suffering all around us, high level or low level, and because of that, we're scared a lot of the time. We suffer sometimes for our own sin, 
But this text explains to us that we often suffer because of the sins of others, because we live in a, in a broken world that is opposed to God. And when we are in, in alliance with God, when we worship God, when we love God, when we stand for His purposes, I think I should say that when our priorities are in line and then we suffer for that, that there are fearful things that, that creep into our hearts and, and scare us. But the truth of the matter is, whether we have our priorities straight or not, and in one way or another, even the most righteous and holy among us really struggle with priorities, that we still live in a world which, which leads us to be fearful, to be anxious. And this text fundamentally points us to Jesus as our protector. And in this, in this truth, it leads us to, to the conviction, and may his spirit do that among us today, that, that we should have our priorities in line, that even if the worst things happen to us, that he is still in control. There is a popular notion, I think, in the Western world, that there may well be a God but that he is not fundamentally concerned with the goings-on of our everyday lives. Sometimes we might call this, this deism, that God is a grand clockmaker who put all the gears together in intricate order, but then sort of takes his hands off of it and lets it run. And then whatever happens, happens. So a vague notion of a higher power but a misunderstanding and a misappreciation that, that not only is he, is he real, that he exists, but that he is intimately involved in all the details of our lives. And, and this text clarifies for us that the one that we believe exists and the one that we worship, the one who rescued us and reconciled us to himself by his Son, calls us to live for his glory. And in so doing, even when the most dangerous things happen, that he is in control. And so I said to your children just a few moments ago as we were gathered up here together that, that when they fear, whether it's low-level things or as they grow and learn that there are more fearful things in reality than things that go bump in the night, that, that there really are things that threaten us, that there is one who holds their lives in his hands. And we who are shaping their hearts, these little ones, we have much to learn as well. So Luke wrote the book of Acts to continue to clarify to the church what Jesus was doing from heaven to orchestrate the expansion of his kingdom. And so we find ourselves examining this text today much like Luke's first readers did. What is Jesus doing now? What does he call us to do and how do we trust him through the process? So let's read the text together. This is God's word. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, I know we've already read this, but we're reading it again. Let it sink in. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And notice that he just, he just moves on. Like, this was one of Jesus' most intimate friends. He had 12 disciples, but Peter... James and John were his most intimate friends. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, either thrusting him through or he was perhaps beheaded, more likely. Verse 3, when he, Herod, 
saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Again, one of Jesus' most intimate companions. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter, I mean, this is a big deal, right? He's probably getting kind of irritated. He just kept knocking, and when they finally opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. This is James, the brother of Jesus, he speaks of. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service bringing with him John, whose other name was Mark. May God bless to us the reading of his word. A long time ago in England, there was a man named Thomas Cranmer. Some of you are familiar perhaps with Cranmer. He, in many ways, is the progenitor and the genius behind the Anglican church. He was born in the latter portion of the 15th century and rose to power, eventually becoming the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, There were some pretty negative things about Thomas Cranmer. He was relatively complicit in some of Henry VIII's uh, shenanigans with various wives, Um, but by and large was marked by by purity and doctrine. 
Uh, he was responsible for the common book of prayer. If you grew up in a liturgical church, perhaps you grew up with the common book of prayer. If you were married with uh, traditional vows, those are drawn out of the common book of prayer. If you, if you watched the royal wedding yesterday, anybody get up at 4 a.m. to watch the royal wedding yesterday? None of you are admitting it, right? I didn't get up at 4 a.m., but I recorded it, and I actually watched it. I, I love stuff like that. Um, I, I know it's not, you know, manly or masculine to admit such things, but I love romance, and, and I, I, uh, I love royalty and that kind of stuff. I just think it's super cool. Um, it, it's it's kind of neat now, right, that we have an American in, in the royal family. All these hundreds of years later, we're sticking it to him. Um, Forgive me if, if you're British, uh, but but it, you know it's really impressive, right? So if you if you watch the the ceremony yesterday, particularly the vows, these things are drawn, though they've been modernized a bit from the Book of Common Prayer. Cranmer was responsible for that. He was responsible for the Thirty Nine Articles. If you're a church history nerd, that eventually established the Anglican Church. Well, after Henry VIII died, who was not a sympathetic Protestant, Henry VIII was was an evil man in so very many ways. Um, his son rose to the throne, but he was just a young boy. He was like 9 or 11, uh, eventually died. And then his uh, stepsister, Mary I, sometimes called, called Bloody Mary. You might want to rethink when you have lunch afterward and go and get brunch somewhere if you have a, a Bloody Mary, um, where this came from. It's really kind of nasty. She was called Bloody Mary because she killed over 280 dissenters of the church, burned them at the stake. Well, her greatest opponent, because she was a Roman Catholic, she wanted to reestablish Roman Catholicism within the realm of England, uh, her greatest opponent was Thomas Cranmer. Eventually, in 1553, she imprisons him and two of his closest companions. He had to watch them be burned at the stake. And then, having been tortured, eventually in 1556, after his, the end of his three-year imprisonment, um, he recanted his commitment to the Protestant faith. Then he was given a chance to preach a final sermon in the College of Oxford, and thinking that this would be her final victory over him, Bloody Mary allowed him to preach. He actually recanted of his recantation. So in private, while in prison, he had recanted of his Protestant faith and felt so guilty for being a traitor to the Lord Jesus that he recanted of his recantation. So he was pulled violently from the pulpit and taken directly to the stake where his friends had been burned. And he stuck his hand in the fire first, crying out as he died, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But before he said that, he said, I will put my hand in the fire first, for with this hand I betrayed the Lord Jesus, the hand that signed the recantations initially. Thomas Cranmer was a mixed bag, some bad things and some good things, but in the end he died well recognizing that the Lord Jesus was his only hope. That's James, the brother of John. Not a lot is said. It's, it's relatively brief. We know much more about James from the accounts of the Gospels. He was one of Jesus' most intimate companions. And then we find Peter. And as we talked about just a bit ago with your children during the children's sermon... Peter was just as important as James, more so. He was more of a central leader in the early church, and he was spared. What's going on here? Did Jesus somehow like take a nap whenever Herod got really mad at James and had his head lopped off? 
did he then scramble around and say, well, we, we can't let all of them be wiped out, so, so i got to take care of Peter. Is it because the church prayed for Peter? We know there were thousands of believers that had been converted to the Christian faith in Jerusalem, though many of them had scattered by this point. The church had diminished in, in size by this point, but, but those who were faithful to the gospel were, were up all night praying for Peter. Was, was Peter spared because people prayed for him, but maybe they forgot to pray for James. That's probably not an inference we should take from this text. James was incredibly important to the text, and though Luke doesn't record it, we probably have to believe that James was prayed for as well. The truth of the matter is we don't exactly know why James was killed and Peter wasn't. But we are led to this conviction that we don't have to fear We don't have to be afraid. And the first reason for that is the Lord has our days in his hands. The early church was not a perfect collection of people. These were not perfected saints. These were not people who who never sinned. In fact, Peter, who is spared here, will later go on to be confronted by Paul for his own cowardice. Peter was a very interesting guy. He he sort of went in and out of periods of cowardice and bravery. He's the one who was brave enough to ask the Lord Jesus to let him walk on the water. Now, he did sink because of his lack of faith, but at least he was out there trying, right? Jesus warned him that, Whenever he would be arrested, that Peter would deny him three times. Peter denies that this could ever happen. In fact, initially, whenever the Roman soldiers come to arrest Jesus in the garden, Peter pulls out a sword and and lops the ear off of one of the guards. Peter wasn't a total coward. Peter did pretty brave things. And then yet, the prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled. Peter did deny Jesus three times. And then Pentecost happens, and, and Peter is transformed and stands up in the middle of Jerusalem where his very life would have been on the line for his Lord had just been murdered. And they hated the claims of the apostles and, and preaches a sermon and thousands of people are converted. And then other events in Peter's life, some are recorded, and of course most are not Periods where he was full of faith and periods where he wasn't. More is said about Peter than than about James. James was a mixed bag too, as you look back into the Gospels. He was an ambitious guy. He he wanted power and authority. In fact, you can look with me and see this in Mark chapter 10. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, this is the James at the beginning of Acts chapter 12, they came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. With the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand 
is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And then Jesus teaches them that they are not to seek greatness, but to seek to be servants. James was not a perfect guy. Another point in the Gospels, they wanted to call down fire from heaven for those who had rejected their preaching. In Acts chapter 12, you have imperfect people. But you have people who basically, for the most part, by way of trajectory, had their priorities in line. So as we began today, we talked about these problems we have. The church had persecution going on all around them. In fact, many of their companions had to scatter because Stephen had been martyred, and so they were afraid for their lives, and rightly so. And yet, they maintained that course. They maintained that trajectory. They fundamentally believed that Jesus was their only hope and the only hope of the world. And so they were imperfect, but their priorities were basically in line. And I think in in this lesson, we have something to learn today. That we don't have to be afraid, for the Lord has our days in his hands. And that may mean that we could lose everything. In James' case, that was quite literal. Jesus had prophesied that indeed they would drink the cup that he had to drink. Martyrdom. Now, John probably wasn't martyred for his faith. He lived to be an old man, but he was imprisoned on a terrible island and was left for dead, basically. James' days were in the hands of the Lord Jesus. Jesus had not fallen asleep in heaven. Jesus was faithfully watching. And James had run his course. James had done what he was supposed to do. His days were numbered, and Jesus took him to glory. But Jesus wasn't done with Peter yet. And so therein, I think, lies the reason why Luke talks about the prayer that was put up for Peter. This miraculous event that Jesus orchestrates, again, from heaven. He's still watching over his church. Peter's life was in his hands. He allows him to be spared. Herod was, this Herod in Acts chapter 12, was the great-grandson of Herod the Great. The same Herod the Great that's mentioned at the beginning of the Gospels when Jesus was born, who had all the children in the environs of Bethlehem wiped out because he didn't want anyone to threaten his hold on the throne. This is the same family, loosely connected, the Herod that was part of Jesus' trials on the night of his arrest. That same Herod was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. These were malevolent people. We talk about bloodlust, murderous people. These people were right there at the top. In this case, this Herod, this is Herod Agrippa I. He wanted to curry favor with the Jews. In fact, whenever he hung out in the environs of Judea, he was a relatively pious Jewish observer. He had been trained in Rome, and there are accounts of when he was in Rome, he lived like a Roman, like a hedonistic Roman. 
He was a chameleon. He did what he had to do to get ahead. In this case, knowing that Peter was indeed the leader of this apostolic band, he wants to make sure that he makes an example of him. Not much is said about James' probable beheading, but a lot is said about what he wants to do with Peter. He arrests him very purposefully during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover time, and after that he's going to bring him out, much like they had done with Jesus. And in this case, they really want to stamp it out, right? So Jesus had been killed at Passover, but, but a legend had grown up, which we know to be true, that the tomb had been emptied, and according to his followers, he was alive, and they kept preaching about this risen Lord, that the law couldn't save, that Rome was not to be worshipped or adhered to, but, but the Lord Jesus was, was both Savior and Lord, that, that all allegiance was to be devoted to him, that all of our hope was to be found in, in him and him alone. So Herod said, I know what I'll do. So in the early fifth decade of the first century, he arrests Peter, the leader. And he wants to make an example out of him. This this is purposeful irony. Another Passover, another arrest, and this time they're going to get it right. So he puts several squads of soldiers, probably a crack squad, and they're guarding him. This Jesus who supposedly was raised from the dead and has caused all this uproar with all of his followers, we're not going to let this happen here. We're going to chain Peter to a couple of guards and and just to be sure we'll put a couple more outside the gate. But nothing is too hard for Jesus and so he sends one of his angels and Peter's really asleep here which demonstrates that he was learning to trust God in the midst of of his tragedy. He, he believed that Jesus had his life in his hands, right? Sometimes the slightest things keep us up at night. Peter had just seen his friend James have his head lopped off. He, he thought this was getting ready to happen to him. And yet somehow he slept. This is amazing. So the angel has to wake him up, so he whacks him on the side. Peter must have been a pretty hard sleeper. Um, my wife is a, is a really light sleeper. Like, the slightest thing can wake her up. Um, it, it's kind of annoying because, like, she goes to bed before me, so I'll lay in bed and watch some TV or whatever while she's uh, going to sleep. And if, if the volume's, like, above a four, she, like, elbows me in the side, right? I'm a, I'm a heavy sleeper, which kind of works out well because if our kids get up in the middle of the night, I just can claim ignorance. I don't know what's going on. Um, so the angel comes and strikes Peter on the side. In the original language, this, this sort of uh, connotes a pretty firm pounding that he had to put onto Peter. So Peter comes too, but he's very groggy. In fact, he believes that this is some sort of vision, that it's not even real. Perhaps you are like that. You're a heavy sleeper, and when you wake up, you don't even really know what's going on for a while. No one should bother you in the morning. It's really interesting, sort of the, the comedic tone that Luke sets here in the midst of great tragedy. And then he amps up the comedic tone because Peter comes to his friend's house. There were some wealthy people in the church who had homes big enough to house some of the gatherings where people were up all night praying for him. And the very thing that they wanted to happen, though they didn't really believe would happen, happened. So he's banging on the door and the servant girl, Rhoda, comes to the door. And she's so full of joy that she leaves him outside. 
And she goes inside and she tells the people that Peter's out there. Now, the first thing that you think they would have said was, well, go let him in. But they just start arguing. They think it's his angel. There were traditions in the Jewish faith at this time that, that every human, especially those in God's covenant people, had an angel that represented them and maybe even looked like him. Maybe they believed that Peter had actually been killed by this point. So Peter's out there. And luckily, the angel made him put on all of his clothes. So he's not standing out there naked. And he just keeps knocking. Has ever happened to you, perhaps, where you've like forgotten a house key? And you're uh, out in the middle of the night and your garage pad doesn't work. Hypothetically, this has happened to, to me before. Like, really, it has. And you're just banging on the door hoping that somebody will wake up and let you in. He had to think to himself, like, I can't believe that Jesus rescued me from prison. The guards didn't even wake up. And here I am at my friend's house and they won't even let me in. Had to have been pretty ironic for him. So finally, they stop arguing and they, they go and they let him in. And they realize that it's not some sort of angel, it's him. But they won't be quiet. At this point in verse 17, they're happy and they're incredulous. And he has to make them be quiet. He has to shout over them. And then he describes to them what had happened. And he tells them to go tell James. Now, this is the brother of the Lord Jesus, a different James. He had not trusted in his brother when he was on the earth. James and his brothers came to faith later in their brother, the Messiah. And then Peter takes off. We don't know exactly where he goes, but he gets out of Jerusalem. The climate is too hot for him to be there. In the morning when it's clear that Peter is gone, Herod is so angry. He thought he had this under control. He thought he was finally going to put an end to all of this gospel proclamation. All this fury over this Jesus of Nazareth who was the king of the Jews and the savior of all peoples. He's so angry about this that the soldiers had failed so horrifically that he has them put to death. This is a murderous man. He is so intent on establishing himself as one to be worshipped and one to be adored that he'll do whatever it takes to make sure that comes to pass. And then we find the account of Herod and the people of Tyre and Sidon needing a good trade agreement so that they can be fed. They curry favor with Herod, with his chamberlain, one of his closest associates, get an audience with him they come to some sort of trade agreement and then Herod comes at this special festival and has a speech and the people because they care more about food than they do about God they worship the God of their bellies more than the God of heaven they shout out to him the voice of God and not of a man verse 22 well that's what Herod's been angling for Herod has been angling for deification. All of his adherence to Jewish customs, all of his kowtowing to Rome, all of this was, was angling for a purpose, that he might find treasure on earth. So the very thing that he had wanted, the adoration of the people, he finally got... And an angel of the Lord shows up again. 
perhaps a different one that came and whacked Peter in the ribs and woke him up. This is of an angel of judgment. And he strikes him down. And he didn't just die a normal death. It was sudden. And then he was eaten by worms. Jesus brought justice down on the head of the usurper. It's really interesting because the Jews and perhaps Herod in particular saw Jesus and his followers as the usurpers of the establishment. But in reality, the one who had made all things and died to rescue all peoples everywhere saw Herod as the usurper. And when it was time, he strikes him down and brings his vengeance down upon him. And in verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. No matter what Herod did to try to stamp out the expansion of the good news, it couldn't happen. In fact, it increased and it multiplied. And we'll pick this up and get to chapter 13, the first missionary journey of, of Paul. Here he's called Saul in verse 25. We'll begin. The gospel is going to really at this point begin radiating out from this region. And so I say to you, we, we don't have to be afraid. Now, when we don't have our priorities in line, there's this nagging notion that, that sometimes we are perhaps suffering for that very purpose. Now, that's tricky, right? It's tricky because none of us are going to ever have our priorities fully straight. Until the restoration, until Jesus brings full reconciliation and, and we're perfected, we're always going to struggle with, with allegiance. Allegiance to God and allegiance to the world. We, we have mixed minds, we have mixed hearts. But, but there are times when our priorities are not straight, when our allegiance is not what it should be. And according to the scriptures, we can sometimes suffer for the wrong things. That's not what's going on here. By and large, though imperfect, they were suffering when their priorities were straight. This reminds us that we don't have to be afraid because the Lord has our days in his hands. Now, what if your priorities aren't straight? What, what if you're not like the early church? What if, what if you're not courageous like James and Peter? Does that mean that any suffering or opposition you face is, is punishment from God? That is a dangerous interpretation. And by that I mean an interpretation of your life. God does discipline his children to bring us back into line with what we should treasure, with what we should be prioritizing. But, but it's hard to know, right? But the fact of the matter is that we should have our priorities pretty straight. Now, I suspect that none of us will be beheaded by a sword. I suspect that none of us will be put into a dingy dungeon attached by shackles to a couple of guards for our stand for the faith. That's probably not our lot in life. But when we live for the kingdom of God, when we live for the glory of Jesus, we are going to face opposition. Some of it will be physical. You may have faced this for the sake of the faith. You may have 
faced opposition for having stood for Jesus. And, and you may in the future. It will likely be more low-level. It probably won't cost you your organic life. It, it may cost you reputation. It may cost you remuneration. And, and there could come a day in this country where things could ramp up to the point that it's even illegal or certainly unfashionable to be a Christian. But sometimes the opposition is more subtle than that, isn't it? Our first song today, the great hymn of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, he says in that hymn, Mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not as equal. Luther felt that. Some of it was physical for him. His very life was put in line for standing against the errors of the Roman church. He goes on to say in the hymn, Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed its truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grimly tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Setting aside the, the twisted little conundrum, the difficulty of interpreting why we suffer, let us just assume that, that we do have our priorities basically in line. We're not suffering for our own sin, but we're suffering for the sinful, broken system all around us, a fallen world. We don't have to be afraid. The Lord has our days in his hands. And, and secondly, the text clarifies, as we've already discussed, even our greatest enemies are under his sovereign control, physical enemies and spiritual enemies. Paul clarifies in Ephesians chapter 6, as we recently studied, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against things we don't even see. Luther describes this in his hymn. We're afraid at things that we see. We're afraid of things imagined. We're afraid of things that we can touch and handle, and we're afraid of things that we concoct in our minds. We're afraid of today, and we're often afraid of tomorrow. But I say to you as the people of Christ, that when our trajectory, not, not perfection, but when our trajectory is, is toward treasuring him and seeking first his kingdom, we don't have to be afraid. If that means we lose everything unexpectedly, suddenly, like James... We don't have to be afraid. Paul would later say to the church in Philippi, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Was Peter really better off because he lived? James was happier. Trust me. But it wasn't time for Peter to go away yet. Peter had a couple of epistles to write. Peter had churches to plant. Peter had disciples that 
he was going to go establish. James' days were in the hands of the Lord Jesus. Peter's days were in the hands of the Lord Jesus. Herod's days were in the hands of the Lord Jesus. Satan's days are in the hands of the Lord Jesus. Your family, your family is in the hands of the Lord Jesus. Our church, it's in the hands of the Lord Jesus. When the worst conceivable things happen to us, the verdict has come down and we are not condemned. We, we need not fear death. The struggle for us is that we often fear life. But I say to you, my beloved brothers and sisters, we don't have to be afraid. It is our lot, it is our calling to have our priorities in order, not to worry about tomorrow. The church, imperfect though it was, basically had their priorities in line. They were going to trust in Jesus and they were going to make Jesus known, whatever the cost. And, and so I have to say, and this is, this is including me, this is all of us, this is our church family, we do have to take stock. And, and that's why we're studying Acts together. Though imperfect, the early church, by and large, had their priorities in order. Jesus was their only hope, he was their greatest treasure, and they made him known in word and deed. And so how are we doing? There's lots of good. Husbands, I see you loving your wives and pointing them to Jesus. Wives, I see you respecting your husbands and modeling the church's devotion to Christ. Parents, I see you discipling your children to love the Lord Jesus. I love hearing stories about the way that you're interacting with your neighbors and speaking to them about the good news of Jesus. I, I love to see you go serve those who are less fortunate, who desperately need the hope of Jesus. I love to see you spend your financial resources so that we can make the gospel known here and around the world. There's much good. But this demands daily repentance, doesn't it? Examining where our affections lie, examining how we are spending our resources of time and talent and treasure. Subtle shifts in affections and desires. We sometimes say around here, and this is not original with us, that we are once regenerate, once born again, but always repenting. So the truth of the matter is, in, in this life, we are always having to take stock of our priorities. Having grown up in steep fundamentalistic legalism, I, I, I recoil against the notion of checklists. And I'm not going to do that to you today. I run away from that. But the truth of the matter is, obedience is not a curse word. Commitment is not a bad notion. And, and so I say to you, Good husbands, good wives, good parents, lovers of Jesus, lovers of each other. It, are our priorities exactly where they should be? Is Jesus preeminent in our thoughts and our affections? And all of us would have to say, probably pretty quickly, not like he should be. And particularly because of what Acts is about, about the expansion of the gospel of Jesus, the establishment of his kingdom, don't we all have a long way to go in prioritizing that? And in particular, making him known. 
I'm not here to heap guilt on you today for whether or not you are a faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus, but, but I do want you to take stock. Are you positioning yourself in such a way that you can bring light into the darkness? James was not beheaded because he was a coward hiding in an upper room. Peter was not bound with chains and soon to be led out to a hopeful execution because he was a coward. And as much good as the Spirit has done in us, there is still room to grow. So I ask you to take stock. Are you prayerfully and practically positioning yourself and putting yourself in places where you can make the good news of Jesus known to push back against the darkness, to bring the hope of life to those who desperately need it. We don't have the power to save. We, we don't even have the power to convince. Only God's spirit can do that. Only Jesus can save. But he has called us to be his witnesses. We need not fear. When our priorities are in line, we can have the great conviction that the Lord has our days in his hands. Your job, your boss, your doctor, your health, your circumstances, they're not going to affect what Jesus is going to do in and through you. They can't. He's in control. And even the things that threaten us to the, to the greatest degree are under his sovereign control. Jesus will use evil for good. And this is why he could say to his apostles in Matthew 16, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew chapter 16, if you don't mind turning there with me. This very context where Jesus promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, he goes on to clarify for the disciples what their priorities are to be. So in verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter wanted glory in the immediate. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, verse 24, If anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. James got that. Peter got that. And we have something to learn today, which is why Jesus can say in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You may be an engineer, you may be a doctor, you may be a lawyer, you may be a stay-at-home mom. Whatever your profession is, our calling is to be disciple-makers of Jesus. And that may well cost us. So I ask you to take stock. Are you engaged? Turn with me lastly before we close to Revelation chapter 1. John, 
whose brother was the one beheaded here in Acts chapter 12. John, who was imprisoned on an island, says to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And then Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He has our days in his hands. And even our perceived worst enemies, seen or unseen, they're under his sovereign control. Our calling is to prioritize first his kingdom and the expansion of it and to trust our lives to him. He will be faithful. He will prove himself to be good. We can trust him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus.